Please visit anywhenanywhere.com for more information about this program. It's our conversation with Wobbly. Who also goes by the name John Lidecker. An artist and musician. And the current host of Over the Edge on KPFA. Wanting to be cool. And rounding out our trio of conversations. For Negative Land November, we have uh, my chat with John Lidecker, Wobbly, uh, a musician and artist uh, in his own right, and then uh, now uh, a member of Negative Land and the host of Over the Edge, uh, the radio arm of that organization. And uh, yeah, it's been very cool to uh, uh, get to know him through these conversations and whatnot. Uh, He's... A very interesting artist who had a very singular idea of what he wanted to do, how he wanted to pursue it, and he did it. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I think the chat is very revealing for people who are sitting there uh, on their own trying to negotiate how they interact with the world around us and how they pursue that thing that they really want to do. And the way that you do that is that you do it a lot. And very hard, uh, as much as you can, uh, until you get there. <laughs> uh, and so that it's a it's a very instructive conversation, uh, and it might also be the uh, most time sensitive of the three interviews, in that uh, we do talk about a new album that was new at the time I talked to Wobbly a year ago. So uh, it has a little bit of um, a slight. Uh, uh, timeliness to it that the other chats don't but uh it it doesn't ruin the effect i think this is a pretty good conversation we cover a lot of ground uh and he was very generous with his time which i very much appreciate uh you know considering that uh i had kind of negotiated these things with uh mark and the weatherman on my own and then uh at the last minute approached john uh, with the idea of interviewing him as well uh he was really in no position to have to say yes (laughs) he could have just said you know um i'm busy uh, or whatever uh and so it was very cool to have him set aside some time uh and go over this stuff which i find uh endlessly fascinating so no more setup uh it's my conversation with wobbly here on wtbc radio in beautiful anywhere anyone UTBC Radio in beautiful anywhere, anywhere. This conversation was conducted by Skype on November 9th, 2017. I have with me uh, Wobbly, uh, um, a musician, uh, artist, and uh, DJ, I guess, is the best way of explaining uh, what you do. How, how would you describe it, I guess? <laughs> uh, those are all fair. <laughs> yeah, I, I notice in this uh, realm, especially when we talk about what we do, it's so difficult to uh, genre splice, and so you want to settle on something that's a little simpler than just saying like, "Well, I'm a 
artist slash video editor slash you know <laughs> the slashes get difficult there there have been times where i play a show and somebody lists me as dj wobbly and that uh <laughs> that doesn't somehow make me feel that great about myself even though it is totally valid there are a lot of uh connotations that normally come along with uh, the idea of dj wobbly but you know on the other hand I, I, uh, it kind of does describe what I do. It's just that instead <laughs> of playing two or three records at once, usually I'm playing somewhere between 50 and a thousand. <laughs> right, right, right. The density is just a little heavier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we should probably talk about records because you have a, a, a new ish one that came out in October, uh, familiar. Um, and this is a bit of a sequel in a way to show ghost pieces. Uh, and when, when did that one come out? Uh, that came out uh, 2014, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So it's been a few years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. this this is with Dieter Mobius and Tim Story. Uh, and I guess um, these are all from the same sessions, but these came out in se- as separate releases. We spent a week in 2012 recording in Montana. Uh, Dieter Mobius came over from Germany for a month with his wife, Irene, um, in 2012 to play a show. And, uh, and we, uh, we, he toured with negative land actually. And, um, we would, uh, do the encores together at the end of the night. There was only one show with, uh, the full negative land. The other shows were negative wobbly land shows, which is <laughs> right. at this point me and Peter, and then we gradually made it up the coast and, uh, made it over to Montana and uh, spent a week at this uh, miraculous studio in Snow Ghost. How cool is that? Like, was this something that uh, when you got started as an artist, you thought like, oh yeah, you know, I'll just be in Montana working on a record with uh, Mobius. It'll be fine, you know. <laughs> uh, 20, 2012 was a really weird year where you know I I suddenly that was the year after I joined Negative Land and this collaboration with uh, Mobius uh, came together and I was also touring with this guitarist Fred Frith like all all a lot of my heroes from my teenage years suddenly um, became collaborators right you said it was you look around the room and you're like i have your records and your records and your records it was it was pretty overwhelming yeah um how cool but at the same at the same time it kind of happens at the stage of your life when um when you're uh when these people just become people like Mm. the glamour the glamour is sucked right out of it and it just becomes the work. <laughs> right. But definitely like, you know, when the smoke clears and you look at the the pressed record on the wall, you definitely uh it definitely makes you breathe a little easier. Yeah, how cool is that? Well, let's talk about those sessions because you know, something I thought was kind of interesting about the lineup is that you've got Dieter who's, you know, he's starting to make work in the late 60s. Uh you have Tim who he's getting started in the late 70s. And you, who you get started creatively in the late '80s, and and it seems like that generational gap is not at all present in the record, uh, but it's a bit of the story of who you three are as as artists. Uh, did you guys think about that at all, or was it was that not even in the room when you were recording? Yeah, it was. It was definitely you know I was definitely the young guy, but then again I am you know in my 
mid forties. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> at, at a certain point you, uh, you really are, it's, it's adults in the room, but, mm-hmm. um, no, I mean like Tim, Tim's a really interesting guy. Like, um, he, he was the person who sort of brought it all together. Like I just began talking with him online. Um, negative land has definitely sampled Tim Story's music a few times, like, and it's all in your head mm. in the early eighties. Um, the show on right before Over the Edge uh, from midnight to two in the morning was music from the Hearts of Space, the legendary oh. New Age space music program. Yeah, I've heard of this, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I missed it, unfortunately, because I, I wasn't in the area. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it was nationally syndicated later. It made it to NPR. So music from the Hearts of Space in the 80s was sort of, it was... Uh, all digital synthesizers and Oberheim matrixes running through the eventide set to the 72nd reverb patch. And it was, um, uh, lots of, lots of times, but, um, Tim's story was on the hearts of space music label later. So Mm -hmm. there was this, um, not that his music is that like totally representational of all of new age, but, um, right. Tim was actually the one guy who was on both Hearts of Space and Wyndham Hill in the 1980s. Very few people <laughs> straddled the twin poles, the diametrically opposed poles of New Age aesthetics. Yeah, how how fascinating! How fascinating! Did this so, uh, a record come together pretty quickly, or did it take a little bit of uh, in the room jamming before you guys had a sense of of where you wanted to go? Um, <clears throat> we just sat down and began playing. Oh, okay. Um, Mobius is very, very spontaneous. Um, in fact, the only, the only times, uh, he sort of, you could even tell his patients, he, by the time, if we ever needed to take a second or a third take, uh, his attitude was, uh, started to wander towards, well, actually, if we need a second or a third take, perhaps we should just do another track because it's a sign that this music isn't very good. <laughs> uh, oh, I love it. He's very direct. It's That's great. He was very direct. Cool. He was very direct. It but was... That is a problem sometimes when you're collaborating and everybody's like doing the uh, mutual admiration club bit from Bob and Ray. And so they're like, oh, no, no, no. You, that was great. You're great. Oh, you know, I love your record. You know. And I love it when someone is willing to, you know, cut through and just say like, no, 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 that was bad. Let's start over, <laughs> you know. Like oh, it, he was, he was very direct. Cool, um, cool. And also, but also like when the music turned a corner and uh, we were actually kind of working, when we turned a corner and started playing well as a trio, he definitely would signal that like we'd, we'd, you know, that this was a good part. Mm, <laughs> it was cool. great. He would like start <laughs> pumping his fists or he would, uh, you know, start shuffling his feet. It was, it was great. I, I'm so glad that you have that mental image because now I'm conjuring it and it seems so great. <laughs> well, I, those cluster records and all of his solo records and the records with Plank that he did in the the seventies and eighties, are really some of my favorite music. Like of mm. all of the the German electronic music, the cluster records are the ones that I come back to more often. And so it's really easy to build them up in my head and wonder how in the world they were even made. <laughs> and um, and that was kind of what it. I, I wanted to I wanted to see how uh, how he worked. Right. And the most amazing thing that I guess I learned was that. 
all of the best moments really did happen in real time. They weren't with electronic music and mm. studio music. Often you abstract the sounds. You think that it's composition, that these sounds could only have been made in a studio or with a great deal of uh, production work or mm. um, labor intensive jiggery. And uh, no, not not always. Mobius, <laughs> Mobius really was a live musician. All of all of the best sounds he made really pretty much in real time that's so cool it's, well and, and this is like the best part about kind of like when you start getting into art is that you realize that while the process can be mundane in some ways it is also breathtaking to see in action because the people who get the most out of it are ones who are patiently waiting for those you know moments to happen you know yeah yep well, you know, you've had a pretty, I mean, I guess talking about collaborations and whatnot, you've had, you've worked with a lot of people over the years, uh, just in terms of different working relationships. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk on the show pretty soon with, uh, Vicky, uh, from people like us. Oh, great. Uh, and, uh, you've done a lot of, I mean, like just looking through the Ubu web page, it seems like almost all your releases have something to do with people like us in some some capacity. Uh, are you always looking to collaborate, or is that something that's just kind of uh, the proximity of who your friends are? <laughs> um, well, Vicky is one of my oldest friends, and she definitely puts everything up. And there was mm. a long time where she was coming over uh, to the Bay Area, and I was going over there. There, was, there, were, there were just lots of opportunities to play. Right. And most of our there's only one record that we've ever done that was really um, uh, a studio production where we really went over it. Uh, and the rest of them were all um, edits of single performances. Like we would play radio or concerts and then just take the stereo tape and cut it down until Got it. Um, all of the best parts were there. But um, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how to sum it exactly up other than that music is... Um, the collaborations have always been kind of at the core of of my musical project. Mm. It's easier to play music in real time, and it helps when other people are there to help you do it. And you um, you discover more when it's not just you mm. when it's not just you up there. Yeah, I, yeah. There's so much of what you know, music is is a part of is basically you alone learning your instrument, learning your gear, learning your craft. You know, kind of that part of it but like without that other component of getting together and jamming it out like it's almost kind of like this um it's all woodshed and no uh nothing to show for it (laughs) um you do have to spend a lot of that time by yourself but uh when it comes to the actual act of music um well, I mean, you, you get a lot. I get a lot out of solo pianists. I get a lot out of I, I'm, mm. I'm happy watching a guitarist. Uh, but when it uh, there, there really is something to be said about music being an inherently social act. And um, uh, and improvising is um, sort of very it's it's an extremely important practice. Right. But there's only so much you can really improvise. Improvising by yourself is really, really tricky. Things really, really come to life when you have another person in the feedback loop. And, uh, right. you know, it's just easier to learn and get surprised by things. Well, it's that uh, dialogue, you know, like um, there's so much of like the idea of monologuing that seems like glamorous when you're very young and you're like, oh, yeah, let me 
listen to the sound of my voice for as long as I can. <laughs> well, we've really we've really got the composer model drummed into us, where mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know we we look for the individual genius who's really determining everything, and uh, music is about self expression and the the dominating vision of one person who's really directing, but. More often, art is just sort of this byproduct of being alive, and you don't right. necessarily have to even be expressing yourself. You can be expressing the situation around you and the audience. You know, um, you can be expressing the audience that you're in the room with. Right. Uh, all of these totally natural things that kind of get that the composer model sort of overlooks. Like music is not necessarily about self-expression. Sure. And this this comes really to the fore with sampling and collage work where you're literally playing recordings of other people, mm. uh, you know, some of them expressing themselves, but also then once again, recordings of other people who aren't expressing themselves, who are telling other people's stories. Like uh, the second you're on stage putting four or five different recordings together who are you really expressing? <laughs> right. What, what, what voice self is are you that? expressing? <laughs> yeah. Well, you're expressing a culture's voice and you're expressing the audience. And uh, sure, it's it's not necessarily about yourself or your self-expression. It's much closer to the artistic uh, purpose of art expressing what's happening with the entire culture. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, I want to talk about variations because this is a very ni- natural place to bring it up. But I feel like there's one more thing that, you know, because we're talking about your persona, identity, expressing yourself musically. And I mean, this seems like relevant in that you have joined a band, Negative Land, that already had a very clear persona, like a very clear voice of this is what negative land does you know and it's not they just, had a very clear aesthetic yeah, yeah it was it, like joining a, it was like joining a corporation right and it's not just the music it's this you know design uh, idea and this website and the radio show and so like when you were doing that did you have to a little bit of tinkering to your own sound to kind of help fit into that voice um well it's it's strange in my late I discovered their radio show when I was 15. So it was, you know, I, I can't even, it, it's fair to say that it was a, a pretty formative influence. And I spent my 20s basically trying really hard not to sound like Negative Land. <laughs> Don't we all? Don't uh, Anybody who's prone to sampling in this way, we all go through that phase where we're like, well, I better check myself because this is going to sound an awful lot like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they staked out the territory pretty, pretty definitively. I mean, there were a lot of people doing doing this stuff, and uh, there are definitely uh, precedents. I mean, you listen to Throbbing Gristle and Cabaret Voltaire, and there are there are tons of little signify. I mean, everybody was running voices over instrumental music. Yeah, but they they really took it to um, they really took it somewhere. Well, and they distilled it too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like finally being in the band after working with them for a long time is it definitely feels like it's coming from the heart if it starts mm. sounding like them. Right. Oh, there <laughs> like you go. It's finally it's finally an opportunity to let myself do things that I would probably prevent myself from doing in my solo career because it it you know, I can actually 
just call it the band. Right, right. <laughs> and I'm, I'm working with David and uh, Mark, and uh, we have a lot of Don's unfinished work. Mm. So uh, I'm not really worried about it. Like, you know, the, the music that I've been doing, I've been doing on the show with Don for 30 years or so, and um, uh, it's just going to come out like however it comes out. And it's definitely not going to sound like previous Negative Land records exactly, but the more the more we work on it, the more it's definitely, obviously, clearly, automatically turning out like a Negative Land record. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, I, I, and like you're saying, that helps that you have this legacy of recordings from both Richard and Don who have passed to, yeah. to, to draw on because then uh, the the not just you know um, uh, metaphoric but the, the actual voices of the band are still there in tape. <laughs> yep, yep. They both liked to record <laughs> quite a bit from what I, from what I gather. Yeah, uh, very cool, very cool. Yeah, I imagine you know this seems like I always think about this with any group where they have like new members come in at like a very later period in the in in it where I'm like, is there like a camp that they send them to where they're like, here's Negative Land 101, where you have to sit through class and Mark lectures and David builds something <laughs> in the corner or something. <laughs> well, uh, I'm not. I, yeah, yeah. In this case, Negative, well, Negative Land is not a band that uh, projects the personalities too strongly in the music mm. and so it's it's not like somebody basically uh it's not like members of the band searching youtube for a steve perry impersonator doing journey covers and like <laughs> making him it's uh it's not like uh uh anderson wakeman bruford how I, I i don't i don't know it's it's the 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 emphasis really is on the uh, the sound in right. a project like Negative Land, but at the same time, I I don't know exactly how many other people really would have. Uh, I've known them for thirty years. See, that's that's the major benefit is that I yeah, as a outsider just listening to the radio show, you went from this someone who was like, oh yeah, and Wobbly's gonna be here. You know, yeah. to wow, Wobbly's here a lot. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, and no, so, the first the first time I played on the radio show was uh, 1987 when I was when I was uh, 17. Wow, so that's pretty. Uh, cool. And I was collaborating with David as well around the same time. So the collaborations with Don and David go back um, to when I was a teenager. Yeah, and that's a pretty you know fertile time in our lives too. You know, you know like those re reaffirming moments when we're teens can really kind of help set trajectories for for future paths it's time for dial a song hey what the hi it's john f of they might be giants and you're listening to austin rich on wtbc radio and beautiful anywhere anyone it's a podcast with austin and this is they might be giants song of the week this is the latest from us it's our dial a song
WTBC Radio is also sponsored by Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce. Locally made in Portland, Oregon, Peggy's Sauce is 100% vegan and 100% ready for you to experience a taste explosion you'll want again and again. Available in three flavors, Hotter Melon, Ghostberry, Five Star Gary, Carolina Reaper. That's with avocados. For more information about Peggy's Sauce, including ordering inquiries, please visit Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce, all one word, on either Facebook or Instagram. Let me say it one more time, Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce, when you need a little something with an extra kick. We So we should talk about variations, because this is a very, I mean, like, you, you do... Uh, lectures on sampling and this was kind of a um, I guess a a radio show addressing the history of sampling and its use in art Um, and uh, you can find the whole thing on Ubu web which is a nice resource in general for all sorts of stuff um, yeah, Kenny Kenny G is great. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah I I I find that you know resource so fascinating as someone who stumbled on it one day a while back and I was like oh my gosh I got to spend hours here just downloading. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's um, overwhelming. Uh, but you know, like I think what's funny about sampling is that it went from this very quickly from this thing which was like it's edgy there's lawsuits ownership of culture is kind of like you know really at stake and now it's become such a way of life that like understanding that precedent is almost even more relevant because we could very quickly lose ground more if we're not paying attention (laughs) like you know a lot of this internet um lawsuits with uh ways that they're trying to kind of crack down on the dissemination of culture feels like similar ways that they were trying to crack down on sampling uh if you want i mean the the lawsuits against musicians have been the most public discussions and uh mm-hmm. publicity that uh, we've had as to the the culture wars and the uh the copyright and ownership wars that have been going on behind the scenes you also occasionally hear about patent wars or medicines being owned or seeds being owned but all of the same issues come to the surface when somebody sues jay-z or uh you know when george george clinton's when you find out that george clinton actually doesn't own the parliament funkadelic samples you know things like that are sort of when you actually get the light bulb moment and you see Mm -hmm. that uh, most of the people who are arguing about artist rights are talking when they're talking about artists' rights, 
the only artists they're actually talking about are the ones that have signed away their artists to corporations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, it, yeah, you, uh, it's sort of a, sh- a shell game has been uh, going on and it's, it's been that way since the 17th century. The concept of the, uh, author is a construct that allows somebody else to own it. Uh, right. <laughs> the concept of the creative author is sort of a romantic, uh, um, straw man that allows other people to uh, publish mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, grasp the property, and these things have only accelerated in uh, in the current age. Yeah, and we can you know put replace the word publish with you know upload to Bandcamp or what have you you know like well it's really <laughs> gone crazy now like you know we're all constantly self-expressing ourselves we're constantly you know it feels as if we finally have totally freedom they've given up on policing a lot of these rights uh it's not as big a deal to make a 10 minute collage of your favorite films um and uh upload it to youtube and uh you know put your own music on top of it like that right. That was considered actionable in the 90s and 2000s even. But now, like, you know, 15-year-olds are expressing themselves by making um, GIF loops out of uh, out of their favorite people and texting them to each other. But under the hood, we're uploading it all to Facebook or Twitter. And there are these, you know, the very act of joining Facebook, they ostensibly own everything that you're posting. Right. Um, you yeah. don't own any of it. You upload something to YouTube, and if the robots detect any other properties, you are um, uh, you forfeit the rights to your creation. So yeah. the ownership has been silently evaporated right out from under us in all in amid all of this incredible. Uh, valorized self-expression. Well, and, and there's a lot of uh, banking on the idea that we won't go through and read those long agreements that we're clicking to and that we're not inspecting all these times that our uh, prop- our content is being flagged for copyright or what have you. You know, we're just kind of going with the flow because there's always something new happening online. Yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly of what the state, uh, how how tested those, uh, those uh, disclosures are have been in court yet where mm-hmm, somebody, mm-hmm. um, you know, Facebook certainly hasn't claimed ownership of somebody who wrote their book in a series of Facebook posts and then, um, published it. Uh, Twitter hasn't sued someone who, um, has published some of their threads first on, in, uh, in tweet format. Right. Um, that would be, that'd be interesting. I think they're, they're just kind of letting it slide, but there's this definite, assumption underneath everything i think 15 year olds are growing up in a world where they kind of understand that they don't own their own expression they don't own their own Mm. data and they certainly don't even have access to the algorithms that are typing their personalities with every post and uh uh, triangulating their interests and their uh their demographic profile yeah well and and in another respect too they're growing up with the notions of remix culture already embedded in the way they digest culture, which was not the case when we were growing up. <laughs> the most confusing thing that I've had to deal with is that in the 80s and 90s, all of the politics of uh, remix culture and prank culture seemed sort of inherently left-wing, mm. uh, like inherently progressive or um, moving towards 
sort of unspoken sense of egalitarianism. Like it seemed to be punching up. It seemed to be inherently revolutionary, inherently anti-capitalist. Right. And for the last 10 years, uh, around the time of Obama's election, when Glenn Beck really got going and Alex Jones pivoted towards, um, you know, he was always anti Bilderberg, but he just like effortlessly pivoted against the left to keep his axes. Yeah, sharp. yeah, yeah. Uh, I just noticed that all of the most astonishing culture jamming that I was seeing was coming from the right. And, you know, they can say they're libertarian or center or anti authority in general, but the right. emphasis really did tack towards. Um, the other side. And so the last year with all of this Kekistan stuff, and uh, mm. I mean, it's just been, these are very, very clearly the cultural heirs. If you ask them what they're doing, they are talking about propagating memes. They're talking about right. um, uh, normies. They're talking about culture jamming. They use the words culture jamming. And so they are, they are the heirs. It's, it's, it's really hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's the moment where I really begin feeling middle-aged. Sure. Well, and, and it's, uh, I find it odd to go to these experimental shows now too, where like the, the, there's not only a much older audience than I remember from when I went to them in the nineties, but uh, the older audience has a much broader political spectrum than they used to. Like I find myself in stranger conversations at experimental shows than I remember. I remember them being fairly mundane left-wing conversations in the nineties. <laughs> you know? Well, that's good. That's good. I mean, I'm not writing off all of these ideas. We need, uh, ideas from both sides. And, um, uh, you know, certainly I've been as disgusted by the cul-de-sacs of the left as I ever have been in my entire life, uh, like really profoundly let down over the last five years. So um, that. <laughs> people who are people who are casting the net wider should not be inherently mocked or laughed at. But at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, oh, my God, if if uh, if if the current paragon of culture jamming is sargon sargon of akkad then we're we're we really 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 need to sit down for for a couple of seconds <laughs> yeah to figure things out. maybe resort resort our, our our artistic goals here well i mean yeah. and and i guess all of this is like a kind of political context of saying like this is why we think at least in my mind that uh, the the political motivations behind sampling originally are still relevant now because they still feel like there's a fight to be fought through remixing and uh you know presenting it back to the mainstream but with a different take and a, another angle um only because we've kind of passed through this uh, uh looking gra- glass uh, realm where everyone is aware of this tool now and so i feel like oh, i gotta sharpen my edge and make mine a little better <laughs> yeah well there's there's that the uh the battleground has moved into an even more abstract realm. Like the, uh, the properties that they're collecting now are literally metadata on your self-expressions. Like mm-hmm. they've seeded the ground. So now it's seemingly like vaporwave is fine. Right. You know, it's the, like Bandcamp <laughs> does not enforce those hundreds of records that are barely manipulated, barely pitch shifted, uh, loops and remixes of corporate eighties and nineties music. And that stuff really sells. That stuff really sells. Um, you know, they've, they've seeded the ground. However, 
the entire idea of actually even owning yourself is kind of on the chopping block when um, their consumer profiles on you aren't even your own. You can't even access them. They uh, right. like if your your self expression um, in the abstract is uh, the profiles that they have on you are owned and they aren't owned by you and yeah. they determine increasingly more and more of your uh, of what happens to you in your life it's it's way beyond credit scores yeah and more and more of what you see and hear and whatnot i mean like i hear more and more people talk about how they have been cable cutters oh we don't watch tv with ads anymore you know it's all online <laughs> you know and uh yeah and so and then i'm thinking to myself as i watch hulu like i'm like wow all of these ads seem like things i might like and I'm like, yeah. oh, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> and yeah. so it's like, it's just another form of uh, the same old, same old. Uh, and we keep kind of uh, as a culture being tricked by this, like almost kind of same uh, shell game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, I just find it fascinating. Uh-huh. And I think that, you know, listening to the variations uh, stuff where you talk about, you know, the history of the sampling, it, it, I think it just it eye opens for people who have not, been paying attention how relevant this is in modern art like it's not just this thing that was like oh remember when hip-hop was all about sampling (laughs) yeah it's Uh. not it's not just like in those realms like it's something that's still um a creatively relevant um thing that we we should be knowing more about well when i teach the 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 variations lecture to grad students and occasionally high school students uh there have been it's weird. There are sea changes. Like in the early 2000s, I get to the point of the lecture where I play them Negative Land or John Oswald. Mm -hmm. And the reaction sometimes would be, oh my God, this is the root of everything. This is, uh, (laughs) wow, this is ground zero. But then there was another weird sea change around 2010, uh, especially when I would play it for high school students, where they would be so utterly nonplussed the uh the environment takes all of the breakthroughs of negative land so much for granted that they couldn't even figure out why the work was supposed to be interesting oh this is like a kid in film school watching orson wells going like what's the big deal yeah what's the big i I don't get it what's the big deal yeah Yeah, and and everybody like listening to listening to the residents and going oh what the, the like badly recorded like you know music by people who can't play what I, I hear this every single day on YouTube. Right. Like, why? Why is this a big deal? <laughs> Not, um, and yeah, the context. Yeah, uh, I, I I think about that regularly with bands that were like when you would discover them in the pre-internet era, and you think like, oh my gosh, this is like blowing my mind. How yeah. uh, how casual it seems to a culture that grows up on YouTube stars and memes. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. And so, yeah, I think those those things are those lectures are great is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, it's it, I think we're coming to another sea change where things have gotten so bad. And if I pick the right negative land track to play, they understand why uh, why the fight is ongoing and why just how important it is. Yeah, um, especially now that so much of uh the form of resistance seems to us have tacked towards the libertarian center and the right to mm. hear this stuff sort of remeshed, well, like, you know, from the 80s perspective with uh, 
with a slightly more revolutionary or, or uh, you know, uh, egalitarian uh, ethic, like where you're reclaiming your own property, you know, it's it can be it can be very eye opening yeah. for them. It's all in your head is kind of in that direction too, where you're, it's like it's all in your head is is I think basically sending that message of like there's all these things that we kind of think are necessary in our life, i.e., religion. Uh, but like that's just a notion that we can push aside and move on, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool, very cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine you know th- something that you have had to wrestle with as being someone who's been an artist for so long is that the technological change of like updating the way that you perform to kind of keep up with the new technologies that are available. Has has your setup changed dramatically over the years? Well, my next solo album actually is a 100% iPad album. Whoa. Uh, okay. And uh it was sort of uh you know, through the 2000s I would basically carry around my own CDJ decks and it was uh I would use a, a Newmark CDN88 mm-hmm. which was a very very specific deck. Uh, but you know, it, it felt really stupid lugging around an 80 pound, uh, case for me, but like <laughs> that was my instrument. That was what I, what I needed in order to play. You know, I couldn't just show up and have the same, um, uh, muscle memory and reflexes on just any CDJ deck. Right. So, uh, when the iPads came along and not only had unbelievably superior playback and uh like file manipulation um tools but also had basically the the history of electronic music in um soft synth form uh available in the apps uh i bought one of them like I play with three iPads and two to three iPhones uh and they're all um, networked together through an analog mixer. Um, okay. They all take, uh, I use the aux routing from the mixer to send all of the different iPads um, a selection of the sound outputs from the other ones. Mm. And uh, then uh, I use a combination of pitch tracking software and um, effects and DSP to transform the sound so that you get a really networked massive sound you you play one sound on one of them and then it daisy chains and triggers the other four or five okay um but uh yeah it just sort of naturally led there and the first instinct was the reason why was because it was so much easier to carry uh four ipads (laughs) than it was a cd deck (laughs) right it was just it was convenient (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh then i was led in just how powerful these tools were and then before you know it i'm carrying around all of the phone all of the apps all of my favorite apps moved over to universal so they're on my iphone as well and i'm literally rehearsing my instrument you know all hours of the day whenever i'm not busy i'm playing I'm rehearsing on my phone and That's, it's incredible. Wow. That kind of, you know, we, I, I feel like I've had this conversation with other people, but like the difference in the way the studio has cha- changed dramatically over the years, you know, like my studio is now my kitchen table in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like I go in and plug in the mixer and mics and do that kind of recording, 
much less. And it's really a lot, you know, on the laptop and, you know, a couple of devices. Um, well, we have those options. There's also been a pushback in the other direction where people are really beginning to fetishize the hardware. I spent, mm. uh, I just did an, in, a, uh, a residency at S1 Synth Library in Portland mm-hmm. and uh, just trying to like keep touch with, I mean, there are like 190 uh, modular synth companies worldwide now all, all making stuff. Like what's happening in Portland on that front is totally bewildering. Oh, yeah. But, uh, but you're, you're, you're right. The, uh, the technology for me has shifted towards um, – I, I never used a laptop computer ever once in live performance because the ergonomics of the device were hostile to the audience. Sure. But something about touchscreens and something about iPads, those things are tactile. The audience has the same line of vision on your fingers as you play them. The screen's not in the way. There are all these things that make iPads uh, and the connotations of using uh, laptops for work aren't there as much. People just sort of naturally mm. use mobiles for play. And so the emotional resistance towards seeing them as creative instruments is... Uh, I mean, like, it's just a social thing. Somebody sees an iPad on stage and they're ready to hear someone playing one as opposed to, uh, you know, the, the they're just ready to hear it as music, basically. Right. In a way. This is super fascinating to me because you know, I, was, I was talking to David and he's very excited about Facebook and performing <laughs> on Facebook and disseminating his stuff that way. And of course, the funny part is, is that his stuff is getting flagged occasionally for content violations because it's because it's David. Um, uh, but in I, you know, usually with bands that have been around for as long as Negative Land has been, the members of bands like that tend to not embrace new technologies very much. You know, like they, and so I'm always fascinated to hear people who are like, "Oh yeah, I do this." You know, and, and the you know, for someone who is used to hearing people go like, "No, I still splice tape. Get out of my face," you know. Like it's <laughs> that was Don. That was Don. I, <laughs> I, he, he made some headway. Like I definitely like taught him pro tools, mm. uh, to the best of my ability. And, um, you know, there, there are, you can definitely hear when Don adopted pro tools for his final mixing on the negative land records. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he eventually abandoned pro tools. He went back, uh, for the radio show and he <laughs> never gave up the carts. That's, uh, um, that's such a, a Don way of doing things too, where it's like, you know, he found what works. I'm going to yeah. do it this way. <laughs> well, well, you know, he took it so much further than most people could have ever imagined. So, yeah. But, you know, it is nice to hear that there was that balance because, like, among that are people who are looking for new technologies to incorporate as well. You know, I, I was talking to Mark and he's very excited about changing his setup to modernize because he's tired of, like, all the heavy gear he's carrying. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I've been pushing him for a long time to, uh, the last five years has mostly been about the Booper, which was in some ways retrenching towards David's uh, original instrument design from 1974. We were mm-hmm. we were looking for something that uh, was simultaneously kind of common to most forms of electronic music, like oscillator feedback, okay. but also had a you know the Booper in some ways is a very very unique approach to feedback oscillation that David came up with for his uh, electronic music class for Di- in Diablo Valley College in 1974. So um, oh, yeah. okay. a lot of uh, we found somebody who 
could build new beep boopers based on David's original schematic, uh, Adam Shaw, and we all had basically an orchestra of boopers. The Booper so, Symphony. Um, the Booper Symphony. So that was um, uh, a lot of Mark, and at first my setup. Like when I first joined the band, we made it uh, an agreement that we weren't going to play any historical Negative Land material at all. We were just going oh. to break break in the new guy by playing um booper improvs and uh there you go so that that determined all of our hardware configurations for a while like mark's live setup from 2011 to about uh well i guess just this year Mm -hmm. um has been booper centric yeah um but then we tacked towards playing the old stuff again and um the boopers weren't always exactly the best instruments to accompany every single one of the old tracks. So we're, we're trying to figure out where the live, uh, we're taking a breath right now and they're a little, to figure uh, out. they're a little unpredictable. <laughs> they're inherently unpredictable. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, you can't make them do anything that you can. I mean, it's brilliant improvising with them, but on the other hand, you can really only improvise with them. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes during a sound check, like they start making a really great noise and mm-hmm. you you just like kill the soundtrack right sound check right there and turn down the fader hoping that it's still making that noise so that you can start the show with it but you know <laughs> more more often than not like you know the temperature is like gone up 3 degrees or something so or like something gone. just changed so you yeah you just you throw up the fader and it's like what what yeah what i i actually got the weatherman to do a little bit of live booper um on Skype uh when we chatted and uh i mean like yeah, I yeah I've heard it on the show and on and records and stuff like that. But it's there's something about it where when it's just unaccompanied booper and it's so alien sounding and strange and it's it's really not like a lot of other electronic instruments. <laughs> no, it's definitely got uh, its creators. Uh... It's creator's eyes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> or yeah. voice. If you want it, you can have it. But you gotta learn to reach out there and grab it. If you are looking for professional photography and contemporary style and glamour, then J. Jean Portraits is your destination. Based right here in Salem, Oregon, just like this podcast, J. Jean Portraits can offer the right kind of photos for the project that you have in mind. To help wet the whistle of people interested in J. Jean portraits, we are holding a contest for the person or artist who would like to do a little photo shoot on us. Please send an email to austinrich at gmail.com and explain why you should have your band, art project, or whatever photographed in a short paragraph. And... The most interesting entry will receive a full photo shoot package courtesy of J. Jean Portraits. You do not want to miss out on this opportunity to get professional quality photography for free. So please enter to win a free photography package with J. Jean Portraits. That's jjeanportraits.com. A professional look tailored specifically for you. We've been circling around this for a bit, but um, you know, my biggest introduction to you as an artist uh, was through Over the Edge, um, <clears throat> which was a show I discovered, oh gosh, in, in the mid-90s. Um, mm-hmm. 
And at first, it was all through CDs and uh, and tapes because I, I lived in Oregon. We didn't get KPFA, um, so there wasn't as much of that option, you know, as a, as a way of um, of hearing it. Uh, and then uh, as time went on, you know, you could stream it online, and then there were better archives, so you could actually hear old episodes. Uh, and so it's just been kind of fascinating to not, not only like uh, listen as a fan and hear you grow as an artist over time, but I imagine taking over the show must have been, I mean, um, uh, for a lot of reasons, very complicated, you know, like this is something you were a fan of and now you're steering the boat. <laughs> um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty overwhelming. I don't think I could do it uh, entirely by myself. K-Rob right. has third Thursdays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, he definitely helps balance it out. Like he has a totally different approach. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody else really knows the archives of the show better than him. He probably knows right. the 90s and 2000 shows better than than I do. And he really um, uh, it's really good to have him there. Yeah. So that that actually helps. And he helps on puzzling evidence, if I'm not mistaken, too. Right. Like he's he's on that show as well. Yes, yeah. he's, he's, he does live sound and mixing for a lot of the uh, Bay Area subgenius live events. That's right, that's right, yeah. And so, I mean, like, yeah, listening to his shows, too, it's like a whole other kind of over-the-edge. Um, so, I mean, like, I understand, yeah, that, so that's, I guess, the, the pressure's not there to do it every single week. Um, yeah. But still, uh, no. I mean, I've talked a little bit about this with the other members, but uh, I imagine losing Don must have had a bigger impact on on you and the show, because, considering that was your entry point as well. Uh, Don, uh, I never went to music school. Mm. Uh, I just played the show, and Don <laughs> was um, he was an inc- he never really formally accepted the role of teacher. Except that, of course, that was what he was doing. And um, he was unbelievably paid. I mean, I just can't believe he let a 17-year-old kid on the show. Uh, I guess I was just really persistent. Sure. But, um, yeah, like so, so much of the aesthetic was um, we'd play for an hour and a half and then we'd um, – go upstairs and have a smoke and talk about the way the show was going. And then we talk about it more afterwards. And, um, uh, we wouldn't over talk it. That's the other thing. Mm. And most of the talk when he did discuss things was not always as much about specifics as much as about, um, staying open. Mm. Um, how hard it is to keep discovering mistakes like the entire uh, right. arc of, uh, you know, uh, an artist sometimes is uh, towards figuring out what you're doing until your horror, until to your horror, you realize that you figured out too much about what you're doing and you can no longer be surprised by yourself. Yeah, that that desire to unlearn what you have spent so many years carefully in, in internalizing <laughs> well some people are control freaks and like their pleasure you know so many artists go south because they're finally making the record that they had in their heads all along mm. and uh it turns out that their best work were the ones where there was still that tension between them tor- towards them reaching for that right and uh so much of what don basically would talk about um 
or just like these little mandalas or mantras on how to stay um how to stay confused how healthy confusion was how uh how to reach for it and how to um you know keep yourself actually listening instead of intending wow. or pushing how radio isn't done <laughs> Yeah. 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 Keep it, keep it not done. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's fascinating too. You know, it, it's, it's so weird. You know, I made this re- revelation the other day that I had been listening to Overrate the Edge for my entire adult life, you know? Um, yeah, me too. And it was so strange to, when, when it, when I realized that something was wrong and that we were going to lose him, uh, I was like, oh my gosh, like I didn't realize the role this was playing. You know, like I got into radio my show slowly morphed into something that was kind of like in the direction over the edge was. And suddenly I had to evaluate all of that in the last few years. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like this is a bigger influence on me than I thought. (laughs) And so it's fascinating to hear that. Like he was so into like explore the mistakes, like, you know, like let, let these things kind of like pan out as they do. Cause that is kind of how my my thing has evolved. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's fascinating. Well, listening is really important for DJs. You're clearly making and shaping, but if you're not actually listening mm. as it goes out, then uh, that's you know it's it's one of those weird things. Like there are all these things that you can do to consciously control the sound, but almost the degree to which you do them, or the degree to which you're not listening. So, uh, <laughs> keeping, keeping yourself, keeping your ears working is, uh, yeah, it's really important when you're a DJ, you think you're just playing the, the, uh, the frozen audio off the record, but it's, uh, it's, it really is a live performance every single time you, you press play. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and treating it like that too, like that, I think that is the biggest lesson that over the edge has taught me is that, you know, this becomes uh, you know, in my case, two hours, but you know, your chance to be in a studio unsupervised to turn on all the equipment to <laughs> check every dial to figure out what every piece of gear does and uh, and have a good time while you're doing it and hope that people who are into that same kind of thing are tuning in and enjoying it as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, it's in, it's incomprehensible to me that there aren't more mix shows, but I'm really I'm happy to hear that you're uh, that you're doing one. I'm trying anyway. Like I I wouldn't say it's on the the level of OT, over the edge by by any <laughs> stretch, but uh, I definitely found that over time, you know, that same story that Don uh, said on the on the over the edge website of like I just playing a record and just listening to it play out became boring and you know, you wanted, yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've, I've got all those craft records. I could listen to them at home just fine. Like maybe I'll play them backwards. That might be the more interesting thing tonight. You know. Well, I just, <laughs> I can't, I can't comprehend why every radio station in the, in the entire world isn't a, uh, isn't a mix show. I mean, like you, the, the mixer was built towards a certain purpose, but the second you have something that can root all those sounds together, I don't understand what doesn't keep people from having every fader up at once. (laughs) For sure. For sure. Yeah. That is half of the fun of, of, um, doing the show is, is not only like the experience of, of trying to mix different things that may not fit together, but then hunting down where that weird sound is coming from too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I had to pitch this one hard and I really like, I don't think, cause you know, we, we live in Salem. It's a smaller town, uh, outside of portland between eugene and portland really so it's kind of outside of these 
cool hubs. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and so like the idea for me at first was just saying like, oh yeah, you know, I'll just play like Mission of Burma and Sonic Youth. It'll be an experimental music show, you know, trying not to. <laughs> and th- as I started doing it uh, and more and more, I realized that like, no, if, if I just kind of let the weirdness go, like people aren't actually scared by it. Like they're kind of interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like, no, it's it's weird. College radio went through a real constriction in the late '90s. Why I had a mix show in Santa Barbara when I was in college, and when I moved to San Francisco, I tried to get my own show either on Calix or KUSF. Hmm. And uh, formatting and reporting to the the independent record labels had gotten so strict that you couldn't they wouldn't let you do a live mix show or uh, they would basically insist on you playing at least 10 to 50% new releases. Right. Just so they can meet their quotas or whatever. <laughs> right. Or they were really, um, or just, they were totally uh, insistent on a completely stringent playlist of every single source played, which is logistically <laughs> impossible. It, right. I can't, I can't do that. Yeah. You're just looking goes, at the first like 60 samples that you did and you're like, uh, how do I log? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. KPFA is incredibly tolerant, incredibly mm-hmm. tolerant, but they, uh, they understand that Don sort of started a tradition and they've been incredibly, very cool. Uh, incredibly supportive. So, but I mean, yeah, there aren't many radio stations that let you do this. You almost sort of have to stealth it. Uh, ab- well, absolutely. Well, and like I, I, I bring in interview guests and performances and stuff. I mean, kind of like what you have done with the show, where you have performances on the on the air and whatnot. It's, it's a good way to kind of bridge that gap. But um, I mean, I still have to log my show too, and I've gotten to the point now where I log the the longer bits and just kind of right. let the peppered samples fall through the cracks because i mean i'm usually using old movies or uh old radio shows anyway and so a lot of it is copyright free things that are you know already uh creative commons or public domain um Mm -hmm. but uh but for the actual things that are from records or lps i try to log that stuff just because we do have those playlists they do get sent in and uh, yeah, you know, thank you uh, FCC for listening. <laughs> if well, you are, Dicky and I have like you know, I I talk with John Oswald sometimes, and he's of the mm, flo- cool. the philosophy that anything short of full attribution, if you're doing collage, is plagiarism. You really mm. need to be very very open about your samples. And Vicky has always been, you know, sometimes her borrowings are quite egregious <laughs> and she has no sample lists. And that's sort of the point. Like mm-hmm, you really mm-hmm. it really is sort of an Easter egg hunt. And it's putting it like side by side where you're saying like, well, this is a sample and this is a sample and I'm making a new thing out of all this. Put that together well, in your they're brain. They're both clearly <laughs> samples. Why? There. Why do you need to know that this was a Peter Wingard record, or mm-hmm. that you know mm-hmm. this was a Polka record from uh, the 1960s played backwards? Like, if you really had the sample list, she she just doesn't think that the uh, the bookish approach adds something to your uh, perception of the music. Mm. And then the other thing is that it also takes the fun out of finding the samples because. The only people who really care, actually, you can almost, it's like the price of admission. If you really want to know what those samples are, then you go and find them. And Don Mm -hmm, never mm -hmm. listed 
I mean, every once in a while, if you really wanted to know what he what he was playing, you could call up as a receptacle caller and just like beg, and you know, just say like, sometimes what was that he would beg, be forgiving, but I mean, most of the sometimes. time, yeah, he most time he would just either hang up or get angry or. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, but like sometimes he would just sort of even respect it. He would be like, "All right, well, yeah, I have been playing this record like you know all the way through. Like uh, this this entire show has just been rich." Pinas as Iceland, so yeah, right, it was Richard right, Pinas right. Iceland. <laughs> but uh, but uh, the the number of times I heard one of my favorite records used first on Over the Edge in the background, or just like mm-hmm. weirdly played at half speed, and then my natural record shopping habits would lead my way to it. Sure, um, that was. That was basically the best feeling in the world when I discovered something finally under my own power. And so Mm. on the whole, I haven't really been – there's a lot of stuff that gets borrowed on Over the Edge. but uh, And I play a lot of really obscure stuff that you'd really have to do your research to find under your own power. But I still think it's – yeah, like I, I don't always really lean towards the playlist. <laughs> yeah, it's a challenge, and I realize too that um, uh, both realms of this kind of work, uh, you know, they they complement each other. You know, like I think that the intellectual challenge of wrapping your brain around what people like us is, and the challenge of wrapping your brain around what John Oswald is. Uh, are two different artistic experiences that are complement each other rather than, and they're not against each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's all, it's all a grand tapestry <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Well, and I love that experience too. And I'm still going through it of finding the sample that uh, was used in an old record somewhere, you know, like that, that still happens to me because I'm not fully conversant in any subject. So you know, something will pop up randomly when I'm listening to the radio or at a party. And this whole context for like, uh, I mean, the perfect cut is probably the best example of listening to that, uh, negative land release. I I'm constantly picking up, Oh my gosh, that's where that's bit is from. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 So that's, a, that's again, like you said, the price of admission, it's the game that we play as uh, fans is like, we like that fun. And, and sometimes having too much of a list can be a little, you're like, oh, where's the fun in that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it, uh, you've been very generous with your time, and I, I appreciate it very much. Uh, but I did have a couple more questions, and I, I guess my next one is that um, you know, you're, you're on the show. Uh, you're doing that a couple of times. Uh, it's like twice a month, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, I imagine that you still have time to work on other stuff. So is there a new Wobbly project that... Uh, I mean, I, you know, this familiar release is, is fantastic, but I, but I imagine there's probably something in the works. Uh, there is that solo record based on iOS devices, which mm. uh, I, it started off basically as convenience, but uh, the record is just as much about surveillance and what it means mm. to have uh, merged my musical practice instrument with my phone um right like that's that's uh uh that's the next solo record and it's called monitress and i've i've um there are hours of material that i'm hoping to like whittle down to one disc by um um oh hopefully by the end of the year and that'll be the first solo album that i actually think i release since wild y 
That'll Ooh. be, I'm really, I'm really, this one feels like, uh, like it's worth putting out. Um, very cool. Very cool. And there is, um, there's a record with Xena Parkins of duos that, uh, I'm, we're sort of looking for a label for it, but we might just put it out ourselves. I the, guess the uh, big, she does the harp, right? Yes. Oh, and okay. there is, uh, I mean, there are a bunch of things in the works. I guess the big one that is due for Sealand sometime early next year, I was in a band called Sagan with, uh, my friends, Jay Lesser and Blevin Blectum. Hmm. And we played a bunch in 2004, 2005. And it was sort of a, love letter to 70s synthesizer music specifically all of the original soundtrack of carl sagan's cosmos oh yes okay okay um, which is really uh the original broadcast of that had a very different soundtrack list than what is currently on the dvd set oh. because they had to uh, renegotiate and license all of that music and so things like Terry Riley and Philip Glass and Brian Eno were priced out. They had to cut out all of that music from um, the digital version of Cosmos. But the original Bummer. show, the original show was like this kaleidoscopic collage tour that would literally fade up Van Gelis and Shostakovich, uh, you know, together. <laughs> it was an unbelievable collage of modern classical and 70s space music. And so there was this band Sagan that was um, uh, kind of helping itself to all of that music, but turning out a lot stranger. So we have a second record. We recorded it in 2005, but I, I um, finally cut it together into a finished thing. So oh. that'll be that'll be coming out early next year. Fantastic. That, that'll be something I'm looking forward to because. Uh, I mean, Cosmos hit me when I was growing up at a right, a perfect time to make me more curious about science and art and music and whatnot. And uh, I, I, that sounds like it'd be right up my alley. <laughs> yeah, I watched the final episode, "Who Speaks for Earth," right after right after the election. It definitely, it's a very important show. Yeah, wow, that's uh, that's a, a at least a little bit of optimism at a otherwise dark. It's not recently. that optimistic. <laughs> it's, it's not a very optimistic show, but it, it's a very realistic show that shows you what the stakes are. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually that's a better way of putting it, I think. Yeah. In, in general, one you know, one of the things that uh, I appreciate on this program is people who, you know, they're the casual listeners who might tune in and go like, "Oh, this is kind of interesting." So, uh, how would people explore the world of Wobbly if they're like, "I kind of like this guy." I go out of my way to make sure that only the people who are really looking for it find it. <laughs> ah, there you go. Okay. But it's not that hard. It's not that hard. Got it. Um, all of those uh, MP3 albums that I list on my website, like the links aren't totally obvious, but if you look, you can find them. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I won't put anything too specific in the show notes, but I'll just say, uh, you know, uh, wobbly, uh, over the edge. Uh, it's out there. Yeah, if if I if I were smarter, maybe I'd be able to. Yeah, if if I were smarter, I'd be a better self promoter. But thank you very. <laughs> I really uh, appreciate being asked about the solo stuff. I thought we were mostly talking about over the edge, but it all it all ties in together. It does well, and and that was kind of what I was thinking. Is that like my initial impulse behind all of this is like, oh, it'd be fun to talk to the folks in Negative Land, and then I realized like, well, there's so many other people that are, are part of that family and that extended universe that like really like 
each of these people has their own little artistic creative story and negative land is just one part of that world. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's complex. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I really came home for me. We're talking to David where, you know, like his view of like the universe and of art and like the world is so singular, <laughs> you know, it's, it, yeah. it, it, there's nothing else like it. And I was like, you know, I mean, as much as he is a member of this band that I like, he's also just the weatherman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's really been amazing watching him on Facebook and getting to be himself a little bit. He's, mm, uh, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know how uh, I'm really hoping I'm December. I'm going to be spending up there working on the new Negative Land record with him. And it's uh, ah. I, I mean, it's it's really odd. Uh, you go through life and then you blink and all. I mean, I've, I've known that guy for 30 years. He's one of my oldest friends. <laughs> <laughs> my conversation with John Lidecker, uh, Wobbly, a member of Negative Land, host of the Over the Edge radio program, and an artist who makes some pretty cool records. So uh, yeah, check him out online, and uh, you can find out all sorts of stuff about him. As you uh, may have heard, he's not exactly great at self-promotion, but uh, his stuff is out there, and uh, I recommend it. I think I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, you know, as uh, time has gone on, uh, there is uh, a, the new album Monitress, which uh, should be coming out soon. So please keep your ears peeled for that. Uh, and uh, sometimes you can uh, catch rehearsals of it on uh, old episodes of Over the Edge, which uh, I recommend. Yes, Negative Land November is wrapping up. I'm almost caught up with the backlog from all of the things that fell behind during the tour. It is starting to feel like life is returning to normal. So please uh, keep listening, uh, keep on keeping on, and uh, we're going to have some cool new interviews, new content, and new stuff uh, coming your way. Uh, What can I say? You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. Without you, there would be no program. Be seeing you. It is pretty emotionally heavy, and uh, I don't know exactly. Um, it might not really go on forever. Um, mm. Okay. Like I, I don't know if I have the same kind of lifetime commitment to it that uh, that Don did. Right. Um, it, it was but my philosophy. <laughs> well, it's I've just got a lot of other projects, but mm-hmm. at the same, and it's it really is so heavy because Over the Edge really was a specific world, and I struggle with trying to make it um you know i mean it's tricky even just having friends on to play because that was don did that sometimes but that wasn't really in some ways that is so much more of a normal radio thing to do to have Mm -hmm. a live mic (laughs) yeah no you're totally right yeah 
I mean, um, and there's a, a quality to those shows that are just mixed with a loose theme that you don't capture. I mean, I, I'm running into that same problem where I'm nostalgic for the shows where I was just like, I'm going to play some classical and mix this PBS special. You know, like yeah. I don't get to do that as much because it's all like interviews and bands and things. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't know. It's um, there's there's nothing that's ever going to be like the show was in uh, the early '80s. Mm. And I also think Don went through an amazing stretch, like in the late '90s, early 2000s, where he just turned a corner and really started getting deep into metaphysics and did some yeah. really incredible single episode shows. That was when I started uh-huh. listening too, because uh, you know it's like I'm just able to start streaming online. I'm starting to get yeah. tapes and whatnot, and I was like, it was such a a killer time. And to go through the archive.org, we didn't even talk about this. The 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 archive of all 34 years. Oh my gosh! Yeah, like I haven't even gotten to the 90s shows because I'm still listening to 80s shows. <laughs> yeah, 80s 80s were the best, and there are some more episodes coming up from the 80s. There was uh, mm. like it was ironic, like the best box, the box that he had pulled aside uh, for sales duplication. Like he had an entire box of the best 80s shows that was in its own box because that was the one he sold the most of. Mm. And that was the box that went missing. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, no. (laughs) And so uh, we've been like finding those shows through other sources and Mm -hmm. some of them turned up. And so Tim is doing another batch of basically all of the best, all of the very best 80 shows. Very cool. Um, very so cool. that's that's still getting on. I should talk yeah, to him one of these days. Uh, David mentioned Tim and, and Mark did, yeah. and, and now you have, and, and I, 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 bet it, I bet I could just give him a call. <laughs> oh, give, I, if you don't have his uh, email, uh, I can give it to you. He's done a lot of, um, you know, the, the, the Negative Land DVD um, mm-hmm. is, uh, he's, he's like basically the most uh, the, the person who pulls together a lot of the the video work and certainly the person who's done my favorite videos for the band is Tim. Mm, yeah, I think we might even be uh, um, connected on social media, so I might even be able to get get him that way. Um, He's a really interesting guy. He would have a lot to say. Cool, cool. Well, yeah, and that, and the, I mean, just in kind of closing that thread, Mark was talking to me about how they had discovered uh, a few uh, older shows from a fan who was recording. And so yeah, I yeah. guess those might be digitized too. So there's treasures to still be discovered. Yeah, it's it's it was a lifetime work. So yeah, but um, K Rob might keep going. But I mean, I I guess we were just really trying to make it at least clear that that the show was strong enough to um, Don wanted the show to outlive him. Mm, um, that's good and, to know. Um, yeah, he wanted he. Uh, he, you know, the word he used uh, in the emergency room was continuity. So um, that was uh, that's what we're. It may not continue forever, but we wanted it to at least like prove to everybody that it um, um, the idea was too strong to uh, to right. die just because he did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it, it kept. Uh, I know you talked a little bit about this when uh, Vicky did the interview with you on her program, so I didn't want to rehash too much of it. But uh, yeah, that yeah, well, th- that yeah. transition period, you know, as much as I was like shocked, I realized in listening back to the like 
the last several shows and then the newer ones that you were doing is that it was actually a fairly seamless transition. It felt like, okay, this is still a show that I know. It's still the same ideas. It's just a different presenter. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, I, uh, don't think, um, you, know, you could interview K Rob might not be a bad person to interview either. Like K Rob is, um, you know, he's, he's the only other person I think who like mixes on this level. Who's also been listening to the show since the eighties. Mm, yeah. Uh, and I know there are other people who are, are out there, but like, you know, I mean, it's, it is kind of a cosmic thing. Like the, the, the two people who actively do this stuff in the Bay area and who are kind of, uh, who really, really know the show are, um, are the two people who ended up naturally doing it. So it's, it just kind of worked out. <laughs> how, how odd. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean like in, in uh, K Rob had, uh, uh, a horrible accident in the early nineties and got a large mm-hmm. insurance settlement. And the first time I heard about K Rob was, um, like right at, right after the U2 lawsuit mm. was when the accident happened. And by pure chance, K-Rob bought something like $3,000 worth of cassettes from Don. Like oh, he took whoa. his insurance settlement and while he re- recovered, he just wanted lots of stuff to listen to. And he suddenly had more money than he knew what to do with. And he just like wrote Don a check for $3,000 and bought $3,000 worth of over the edge cassettes. Oh, wow. And it came, it came at a time when Don had no rent money. And um, I never heard that story. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. K K Rob's basically been in the family for uh, you know that was that was the first time I heard of K Rob. That's fantastic. He's pretty committed. I I don't think I could have been doing this show without him. WTBC anywhere anywhere from our house to yours.